Sego and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, your host. I will be joined, if I'm not joined already, by Regan DeLoggins. Um, today is Orange Shirt Day. Now, I'm not going to say Happy Orange Shirt Day. There is nothing happy about the reason today is Orange Shirt Day. Although, when Canada decided they were going to make September 30th a holiday, uh, marking it as Truth and Reconciliation Day, they want us to be happy about it. They want us to be happy that, that this action is somehow uh, substantive. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what this is all about. This is about residential schools. And I know I've talked about it in the past, and I'm going to talk about it some more today. We're going to talk about residential schools. We're going to talk about victims, survivors, and the legacy that remains with us today because of residential schools. And of course, the, the two words that, that are always as associated, especially with residential schools, are, is truth and reconciliation. And I'm just going to say it. There has been neither. And you know, while a little bit has come out, enough you know, to make people a little uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable on the Canadian side, there's been very little discussion on the U.S. side. And there has been no reconciliation. Look, when they did a, a full commission on the Canadian side, um, a, that was supposed to be the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were like 94 um, actions that were called upon or called for out of, uh, out of that report. And almost none of them have been, been followed up. And I don't know if making a holiday was one of those calls to action. I hope not, because a holiday is not what we need. A holiday is not what we need to address the not only the act, the atrocity, the war crime, the genocide, whatever you, however you want to characterize it, and, and all of those things do characterize it, the murder, the, the rape, the, the abuse that the residential schools represented. It isn't just what it represented. It what, it's what it still represents today. So, I, like I said, I'm hoping we have uh, Regan uh, joining us. Reggie, is, is Regan uh, tapped? Are we tapped into Regan yet? Still waiting. Okay. Uh, I know that Regan does plan to join us. Um, let me take this time to once again remind people that we are listener-supported radio. We depend on your contributions to both WBAI and WPFW for supporting this station and supporting this program. Uh, we wouldn't be on these two stations. Uh, and, and I think a couple of affiliates may have picked this up as well. I don't want to leave anybody out in the dark, but... Nobody's actually reached out to me to let me know, but I think we've been picked up a few other places. But I think it's really important that, that you, you realize that without your support and, and, and some support in the name of this, this program, you know, we, we wouldn't be here. And, and I think we do, I know I personally owe a debt of gratitude to both WBAI for all of these years that, I, that I've been with them and for WPFW who's picked us up relatively recently. But, but I will say that both WBAI and WPFW have always provided space. You know, we talk about land back and, you know, or land acknowledgement, I'm sorry. And, and what we want is, is land back, not just land acknowledgement. We want space. And sometimes that space is airwaves. Sometimes it's the internet. Sometimes it's, you know, j just an audience. It, it isn't just real estate. It isn't just land. You know, the land is all still here. But how much of it has been availed to us and how, many, how much of the infrastructure that we depend on today has been availed to Native Voices? Well, I got to give credit to WBAI BAI and WPFW. So again, I ask you to the pledge line, if you are listening to us in New York or online and uh, you want to support WBAI, go to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Um, look, I'd, I'd love it if you would uh, become a buddy a BAI buddy, as they call it in, uh, in New York, and do it in the name of the show. And if you are already a buddy, then up your contribution a little bit and, and do that upping uh, in the name of, uh, of Resistance Radio. And, and again, you send a message, you, uh, your support supports our space on, on the airways. If you're in Washington or if you're listening online and you want to support WPFW, then I ask that you... Uh, go to that pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWFM, 
www.ghanaian.org. And again, you can be, um, become a monthly uh, uh, member. Um, and in and, and doing so, when you make a contribution to these stations, you actually become a member of the station and you become a voting member. There's an election that is going on right now for uh, the, the local station boards. And if you donate to the programs, you become a member of, of the, uh, if you donate to the, to the stations, I'm sorry, you become a member of the stations and you get to vote. So um, it doesn't, it, it comes with perks. Uh, and, you know, and of course, the biggest perk is, is the programming. So I wanted to get that out there. All right. So again, it's, it's Orange Shirt Day. Now, on the Canadian side, I believe I read someplace that they've uh, officially designated September 30th as Truth and Reconciliation Day. And, and, I, and I find that somewhat problematic because there has not been a full disclosure of truth on the Canadian side, even though they want to say the books are closed on it. They threw some money at, at some folks. But I guess the, the biggest issue that I have, and, and the one that I want to address more than anything else, is that if all we do is offer programs uh, and we continue the same legacy of assimilation programs associated with those, with those, those funded programs, then, or, or if we get apologies, if they say, well, um, we're sorry, we're sorry for the, this terrible thing we did, what it really means is, yes, we're sorry for this terrible thing we did, but man, wasn't it successful? Wasn't it just great? Look how assimilated you all are. Yeah, we, we you know, you, some of you vote in our elections. You, uh, you praise it when, when one of your, can when a Native person gets elected into office or gets appointed. And Mary Simon comes to mind on the Canadian side and, and Deb Haaland comes to mind on the U.S. side. You, you're so excited when, when, when we, we do something like that for you. Well, here's the thing. Kill the Indian, save the man. That wasn't just a slogan. That was the strategy. That, that was the mission of residential schools on both the U.S. and Canadian side and throughout the world as they did this to other indigenous people, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, South America, wherever. Kill the Indian, save the man. Now, some will argue, well, they didn't literally mean kill the Indian. Well, an awful lot of, <laughs> awful lot of children died in these schools. And when, you know, a, a full tally, if a full tally is ever really uh, accounted for, we will know, if not tens of thousands, over 10,000 Native children will, I think the truth will come out, some of it will come out, that over 10,000 uh, children died in these schools. Now, if you're going to tell me that kill the Indian didn't literally mean kill the Indian, then why did so many children die? And, and if it didn't mean literally kill the Indian, what did it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it meant. It meant kill a part of every child in those schools. Kill the native identity. You know, cut the hair. You know, uh, remove all the clothing. Put them in uniforms. Get rid of any traces, any semblance of their culture. Deny that from them. And, and in fact, make them ashamed of that culture. They don't have to necessarily be ashamed of... Um, of, of being a native person, but you can't be culturally a native person. They want, they want to America, they want to assimilate. This was literally ethnic cleansing and it included <laughs> things like, you know, you know, burning the clothing, you know, uh, you know this, this, this kind of harsh, you know, almost prisoner type bathing and delicing. I mean, it, it is, you know, I mean, when you talk about ethnic cleansing, it was literally that. It involved uh, sterilization programs. It, it involved sexual abuse beyond that, which, and that too is sexual abuse. This is what took place. And, and so, okay, so when did this take place? It took place for 100 freaking years. For over 100 years, the US and Canada was doing this to native children. You know, there was a, um, there have been a couple of studies, both on the U.S. and the Canadian side, even while these things were going on. And there was some determination that at one point in the U.S., 85% of all Native children were in, in residential schools. Now, we can you know, nitpick over the numbers because I don't know that there's ever been or still is an accurate count on how many Native people uh, exist in the United States or in the Canadian, on the Canadian side. You know, they, they like to say that you know, they do their census and 
Look, I never filled out a census form, so I'm not in the numbers. And then, then you, of course, you, you also the numbers get skewed in other ways because everybody who claims their grandmother was a Cherokee princess will somehow list that they were that they're Native American. You know, and, and the same thing happens on on the Canadian side. So the numbers are are inaccurate. But but again, if you look at in the government if, if the government numbers, and they're suggesting that eighty five percent of Native children were in this indoctrination program where a part of them was being killed every day, every day. You know, I, my, what, what my motto on this thing is that some died, but all died some. Because we know what happened to the children. We know. And, and, you know, look, when people say, oh, yeah, they discovered uh, unmarked graves. We knew that there were children buried. But, the, but Canada and the United States would never admit to it. Yeah, they, they had some documented um, deaths. Yeah, schools that had to have graveyards. Yeah, go figure. Regan has arrived. Oh, that is just awesome. So, I mean, it, it is really important that, that we understand the scope of the depravity that was occurring in these schools and the duration. You know, look, every time I talk about genocide and, and, and you know, and, and, and this isn't tried, trying to be like, uh, you know, oppression Olympics, but you think about what, what is considered the Jewish Holocaust, stretch that over 500 years. And at some level, there was some level of genocide and still is today that is being perpetrated against Native people on both the U.S. and the Canadian side. You know, and not, now it's more geared towards other ways of assimilation through municipalization of our territories, through you know, extractive industries, through, you know, and through policies that, that the countries will defend, defend, like Canada and the United States. But then, of course, there's the other parts that they won't, won't defend, like missing and murdered Indigenous women, high suicide rates, the, the poverty that was created on our territories. In fact, they create poverty on our territories, and then they claim that's the reason you got to rip kids out of our territories to to go to these these prison uh, these prison schools. It was to it was to they were already re regarding our children as irredeemable. So they were already saying that our kids were handicapped, that we were malfunctioning, simply because we were native. That's that's what the the New York State that's what New York State's determination was. That, the, that Native children were irredeemable, so let's try to give them some skill set that will allow them to, to reach some level of productivity for, the, for American society. Forget about them, but what can we get out of them? You know, maybe we can teach them to pick crops or, um, I don't know, uh, clean up after white people's houses or something like that. And, and that's, you know, basically, you know, Native people were only trained to, to pick crops, or maybe march in a straight line so they could join the military. And Native, Native women were really taught to be part of, you know, home service, you know, for, for, for wealthy white people. I mean, it, it, is really, it is really that twisted. Regan, feel free to jump in at any moment here. Great. I'm so glad. Can y'all hear me? You sound great. Oh, excellent. I love to hear that. Yeah, you know, um, uh, again, you know, sorry for being late. I wanted to find, I find, I wanted to find a spot where I had good service and I do right here in this parking lot. So, uh, I'm excited to join y'all today. And of course it's an, you know, it's a difficult day. Um, I think for a number of us, uh, as you know, it's the, you know, quote unquote national day of remembrance for Indian boarding schools. And this is the first time where a number of people where a number of us people on the U S side of the so-called border are joining, um, folks in so-called Canada in honoring September 30th as, as this remembrance of Indian boarding schools, as this day to remember uh, those who were the most impacted, impacted and targeted. And uh, as we've spoken about a, a number of times on the show since uh, the unearthing of the mass grave at Kamloops back in uh, late May, you know, we really do, we've really been unpacking a lot of what, what federal Indian boarding school policies were and have been and how they've so, um, deeply impacted our communities in such, in such atrocious and really incredibly violent ways. And I think it's like, I think that this conversation that we're having is, is imperative for, um, for folks to understand that like, this is not something that was in um, the historic past, but also something that was in the recent past, you know, the, in, in so-called Canada, the, 
the last boarding school closed in 1996. So, you know, that's that's within my generation. That's within my lifetime. Uh, and then on the so-called U- U.S. side, you know, we can't forget uh, that uh, a lot, a number of these boarding schools just became day schools or labor schools, and a number of them still remain open uh, and have been transformed into like different uh, vocational schools specifically for Indigenous people. So this is not something that has uh, been forgotten or or rather isn't in the, I just want people to understand that this isn't back in the, you know, in the ancient past, but rather within generations um, of those who are living today. And I think that that is an imperative understanding in terms of uh, indigenous trauma, because I think so often uh, we uh, people frame indigeneity in the past. Well, not only do they frame it in the past, they, they you know, and, and as you talked about, um, how recent this is, you know, we, we also have to acknowledge that, that the foster care system, child protective services, these in many ways be, have really been a continuation of some of the boarding school policies. And in fact, can y'all hear me? Yeah, you broke off for a little minute. So I jumped in. <laughs> so no, let, okay, me, let me great. finish no, no, my, let fine. me just I finish. Why it... Yeah. Let me just finish my one thought. Of course. If, uh, in Maine, when uh, there was an effort to do truth and reconciliation, it wasn't so much geared towards residential schools as foster care. So, and, and that's something that would, would continue well past, even, even as schools were shutting down, this foster care system, that we, what people referred on Canadian size as 60, 60 scoop, you know, so much of this stuff would continue in various forms where children would be taken from their homes, taken from their territories, taken from their families, uh, you know, not just their mother and father, but their, their extended families, and oftentimes raised by white, white folks. And, 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 and that wasn't as good a thing as what people want to think. Everybody thinks, well, isn't it great that affluent white people would pick up and save a native child? Well, the problem is, and this is what was really borne out in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine, was how much abuse took place in these places. This wasn't just, you know, these, these altruistic you know, white folks who wanted to help Native people. They saw this as an opportunity to, you know, to get cheap labor. So I just want to throw that in. I, yeah, I think also it's imperative that folks understand that uh, boarding school systems were extremely gendered. And not only was labor gendered, but also how, um, how Indigenous folks were treated within those spaces were gendered. Um, and so I think that's an, a... a something that isn't really spoken about in terms of the, the violence that was experienced in boarding schools and how that has impacted our communities in terms of um, adopting a lot of gendered belief systems. And this is something that we've also unpacked on the show before. And, you know, like specifically in terms of uh, two-spirit indigeneity, as well as uh, um, other folks that may not identify within the spectrum of male and female within our communities. And when taken to boarding schools, uh, being forced uh, you know, girls to one side, boys to another side, and then the labor itself being gendered has had, you know, really detrimental uh, impacts on our communities, especially on how we view gender and how we view labor gender. And that isn't something that is within, that is inherent to indigenous beliefs, but rather was forced upon us within these boarding school systems. And a lot of the time we don't talk about that. You know, of course, boarding schools were incredibly abusive. Children were, uh, were beaten, were murdered, uh, were malnourished. Uh, we're forced to to learn labor uh, skills that were based in uh, providing service to white people or to uh, to you know think uh, a lot of it was manual labor based. It wasn't skill based, but also a lot of this was based in this uh, uh, violence of gendered labor. And I think that's something that really hasn't been unpacked in a way that a lot of other abuses have been. And it's part of. Uh, not just assimilation tactics, but also part of Christ, you know, Christian and Catholic teachings. Because a lot of these schools, you know, though they were federally uh, funded, were also you know managed by the church. So we can't ignore the fact that this also was a part of the conversations within these school systems. Well, and I think it's important when you when you especially when you're talking about the the gendered nature of these schools that it was definitely uh, you know part of the the religious indoctrination that was happening, and of course. When you think about the sexual abuse that was taking place there, you also would, would leave children with with a very confused, if not traumatic, understanding of what um, what intimacy was. Uh, you know, when you when you consider the sexual abuse and uh, that was taking place at a high rate at these at these schools. 
Of course, you know, how, how can we, how can we ignore, you know, also it's important that, you know, content warning, talking about sexual abuse. It's also important that people understand that sexual abuse is not usually is, you know, is about power and about exerting power. So a lot of all of these abuses that existed within the boarding school space were to exert power over Indian children and how, how disgusting to exert power through sexual violence, how disgusting to exert power through gendered violence, how disgusting to exert power through starvation, um, through beatings, through abuse, you know, like it's there, this is all about killing the Indian and saving the man, you know, that was what it was all about. And to, to, and for the, and for there to be apologies or for the federal government or for the church or for other settlers to embody, uh, you know, quote unquote accountability through these, uh, these, these, you know, half-ass apologies is just so, so disrespectful. Uh, and honestly, I just, I, I do not look forward to how this will continue being navigated on the U.S. side, considering how I've seen boarding schools navigated on the so-called Canadian side and how devastating that has been for First Nations people. And the fact that even today, people are embracing, um, uh, on the U.S. side, embracing this day in solidarity, but also to mourn those who, who were in uh, the school systems. You know, I'm really wary of seeing how, how quickly this is going to be co-opted um, and how quickly, you know, there's going to be the same kind of uh, negligent, gross uh, truth and reconciliation on the U.S. side in order, for, in order to placate settler uh, guilt. Well, and I think acknowledging these atrocities, you know, oftentimes, I, I, don't, think, I don't think people can appreciate how triggering some of this has to be for, for many people. And look, just because, Regan, your generation and my generation perhaps didn't experience the direct impact of residential schools, we all inherited and, and were, were indirectly impacted. It, it affected everything from family relations, the idea of stories that, that were no longer handed down, ceremonies. And of course, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about on my podcast in particular is how much the meanings of our stories and, and some of our, our ceremonies and some of the things that we do that we've done for, for, you know, since time immemorial has been altered because of some of these, uh, this assimilation, not just the, the church stuff, but, but, but all of it. And, and so we no longer, you know, can have a clear view because we had a hundred years of this kind of, in, you know, ethnic cleansing that was happening, uh, you know, happening to our, to our people. The other thing that I think is really important is, is when you think about how did the deaths occur? You know, so yes, we had children die of, die of illness, and, and many of the children died of illness because of an absolute you know, astonishing absence of health care. And there were children who died needlessly because even the most minor ailments or injuries could sometimes be fatal because of the lack of health care. And, and, and of course, when you, you see how things like tuberculosis was, was handled, it was allowed to spread. And in fact, it was all, we, I think there, as if real truth were to come out, you would find that much of this was, was encouraged to spread because it, 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 it's, it solved the kill the Indian portion of that kill the Indian, save the man uh, part of it. But there's also, you know, we, we had children who died, who died of illness because of malnutrition. We had children who were murdered. We had children who were beaten. We had children who committed suicide. At a, and this is at a time when, when youth suicide was virtually unheard of. I mean, there, was no, there were no numbers. And in fact, if a child did commit suicide in the white world, it was considered an anomaly. But the number of children who died at their own hands or the children who died because of of exposure because they tried to walk the hundreds and hundreds of miles to return back to their homelands and would die on the on along a railroad track like Cheney Wenjack or would die you know on uh, you know alongside the road freeze to death in the winter time these are this is the 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 full range of 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 how children died and of course there was also and this is the, the part that's really ludicrous is when i think about the uh, the role that that the evangelicals and the Catholics and, and, and such want to play in the abortion argument, there were, there were babies who were, who were murdered 
that were illegitimate births, as they were being called, because, uh, because of young girls that were impregna impregnated by, by clerical staff. So, you know, when I listen to, when I hear this debate over, over abortions and I, and I think about the horrors of, uh, of babies being, uh, being killed because, you know, because these, these young girls were, uh, were, were raped and were impregnated. It's, it's, it's incredible. I think it's, sorry. I also think that, you know, the abortion argument is such an interesting one because we all know that people who advocate for that are advocating for white children. It's not like they want to see more brown and black people born. So for me, like it, it's such a, uh, it, I, I understand your point, but for me, it's such an irrelevant one because in the end, like people who are advocating for, you know, uh, for life, you know, and I'm putting that in, in, um, also I'm being like wildly facetious cause I, it's such a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, people who are advocating for life, like in the end, people who, who are anti-abortion are anti like white people having abortions. Like it's, a, it's, it's often and so quickly interlinked with white supremacy and eugenics, eugenics, eugenics that like, for me, it just seems like, you know, it just seems erroneous. It, but also I think that it's imperative that we, that we do discuss the fact that like, this is, why is that erroneous? Because in the end, brown and black lives have always been seen as something expendable. Even in discussing kill the Indian, save the man, people are like, oh, well, there was an intention to, to not participate in genocide, but rather to save these people. But I want to remind you all that assimilation is genocide. Uh, you know, cultural genocide is genocide. Like genocide is genocide. The intention was to kill us. And that's why there are so many mass graves. Uh, and there will be continue to find more and more mass graves. Uh, because in the end, honestly, it was not even about saving indigenous people because they were respected, but rather because they provided a free labor source. And if they weren't able to provide that free labor source, then they were expendable enough to die. And, and most of the time, we were. We were murdered and in a number of different ways within these residential school systems. So for I think that for me, it's I, I really hate that I like talking about the kill the Indian, save the man, because that was the intention of the policy. But let's not ignore that it was really kill, you know, it was kill the, kill the Indian, you know. Right. That was the, the intention of all of it was just to kill us. Well, and I want to address, I, I, I know I've mentioned it before, but I got to address it again. This, this idea or this concept of cultural genocide. Because on the... I hate it. What came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, on, yeah. the, on the Canadian side was... A report that Murray Sinclair um, offered up, and in his report, he called residential schools cultural genocide. And you know, as as you were suggesting, look, if you want to eliminate a people by eliminating their culture, that's genocide. It isn't really cultural genocide. Yes. And and you know what? If you're trying to suggest that, well, that somehow this is a a softer side of genocide because you're only you're, you're only ridding the culture. Then why why are we going to see ten thousand you know murdered children here? And why were exactly. the, the abuse and all of these other things that took place, the sterilization that wasn't about culture. That was about the the very eugenics that you were talking about. Let's not have the undesirables exactly. reproduce. So yeah, when I when I hear, I, I hate when somebody says you know tries to put a precursor in front of the word genocide. It's genocide. In fact, these residential schools really represent all five of the of the key components that are considered uh, that are considered genocide creating the con the conditions for for people to cease to exist the idea of ripping children out of homes sterilization murder I mean uh, physical abuse uh, psychological abuse uh, all of these things that you, you that were done at residential schools so when I hear anybody throw the word cultural in front of the word genocide it just pisses me off yeah, it's so disrespectful to assume that genocide isn't whole. Also, to assume that genocide isn't holistic. Right. Genocide is holistic. It attacks culture, obviously. It attacks multiple generations, so children are targeted. And then it specifically targets gen uh, engendered people as well. So it will t attack uh, indigenous women. It'll attack indigenous queer folk. Like, we, we see this. And then, of course, and, and then it will invite Native men into the patriarchy in order to uh, allow, a, you know, a, a belief of, of uh, escaping oppression through assimilation as well. So well, it's like, they'll, they'll, the they'll end, allow women in there, too. I mean, Deb Hall and Mary Simon come to mind. <laughs> of course. Yeah. You know, that's and that's and that's another way. It's like 
assim- people talk about assimilation as a means of survival. And yes, of course, but assimilation is also a part of genocide. Genocide is holistic. For people to say cultural genocide is ignorant. Um, and, and just like, uh, I think it's a way to somehow lessen the blow of the term genocide. Well, it was cultural, you know, like, what, what do you think? What do you think we are without our culture? Yeah, like we are, we are nothing without our culture. So to 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 assume that we can survive genocide without our cultures is so it's 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 so disrespectful. And I know we've talked about it before, but it always gets me angry. So I feel like we constantly have to talk about it. I that think that so. kind of terminology is violence. Well, and, and here's the other thing, and and I mentioned this to you in my in my message before the show. I don't know how yeah. we can accept an apology before this atrocity or you know this hundred years of atrocity that uh, that was committed against our people through our children i don't know how we can do that if there is no even conversation about the restoration of our autonomy and distinction you know look i mean if you're gonna just apologize and say yes this was a terrible thing we did but man wasn't it successful because that's what we hear. I mean, that's what we hear. I mean, you know, when I hear somebody suggest, yeah, well, you, you, you lost your land and, you know, and your resources and your lives, but, uh, but you gained Christianity. Like somehow that was a trade? That was, that was a good trade? Yeah. I mean, so look, I don't think we can have any substantive reconciliation if there is not a component of this that talks about the restoration of our of our autonomy and distinction and the recognition of that which is something Canada and the United States are strictly and, and adamantly opposed to and, and in fact this is you know a, a, among the things that I find so weak you know um, among others but so weak about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples because they stop well short of any conversation about words like sovereignty or you know our 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 real self-determination in the sense that that we decide who we are that we are not that citizenship cannot be imposed upon us i mean and and yet we still we still live in a world where where we can't even travel even crossing back and forth against that imaginary line that was driven across our territories known as the u.s canadian border that travel is forbidden if we don't comply with their Travel documents. I mean, it's it's absurd. Absolutely, you know, it, absurd. I feel like that's such a term that we. I feel like I use that so often Me on the too. show, and also hearing you use it because so often I feel like it. It is the best way to describe what is going on. This is absurd. There is honestly sometimes feels like it, there. There's no even explanation, and the fact that we have to constantly regurgitate and talk about these things. I mean, of course, I'm I'm thankful that we have this platform, and I'm and, and I'm so glad that we're constantly in conversation with one another. But you know, this just feels. Also, I want to talk about performativity in terms of this day, about you know this national day of remembrance. And I, you know, I really am fearful to see how it will be co-opted in terms of how so many other holidays of remembrance and rage have been co-opted. And I think that that's also a part of this absurdity that I look forward to unpacking with you once we see, uh, you know, settlers in orange shirts. Well, I mean, Walmart started selling, uh, you know, um, Every Child Matters shirts uh, on the Canadian side. Oh, no. Yes, they, they did. And of course, all, no. all, all proceeds are going to go to, you know, to, you know, to a fund and all that other stuff. But it, it misses the whole idea that, that Walmart is the epitome. I mean, it, it, is, it is the, you know, the exact example of everything that has, you know, essentially been done to our people. I mean, uh, so, yeah, so we don't have to look that far down the road to see how this thing gets co-opted. Absolutely. And, you know, something that I was talking about today on, um, on, my, uh, on my Instagram in terms of in relation, in, in response to, to today, in response to this National Day of Remembrance, is, um, you know, all schools are boarding schools. Colonial education, including academia, including public school systems, including charter school systems, including a number of educational systems, participate in this continued assimilation. And as we just said, assimilation is a tactic 
of genocide. And colonial education systems have been adopted into indigenous communities where folks have really embraced this like idea of hierarchy as a way to disseminate knowledge. And I just want to like challenge folks who are listening to this show uh, to remind to remind you that like even as we're mourning those who were stolen from us, and even if we're mourning those who were violently assimilated um, and murdered by the state, we also have to remember that settler colonialism still maintains these educational systems of oppression to kill the Indian and save the man, that there isn't any empowerment in assimilation. Like there isn't any power in assimilation. And so, you know, I am an educator. I've been an educator for many years. And for me, the most rewarding educational network has always been ones based in Skillshare and mutual aid and reciprocal learning and, and teachers being learning as well as students, like, you know, to, to blur that line between teacher and student. Uh, and, and I just feel like that's such an imperative part of this conversation because so often we um, measure our standards of success through reaching, through navigating these systems of representation like education, like academia. And in the end, it just inserts us into webs of ongoing oppression. And so I just want folks to know that like resisting assimilation is imperative. Resisting education systems is imperative. You know, we can't let the state rob us of our integrity and our indigeneity. Well, and, and I, you know, to your point, I don't know if you saw the story just this past week, but uh, some uh, young uh, um, student w got somehow punished or, or called out for not um, honoring the national anthem of Canada. It was, oh, it was, it was a story. Yeah, you know, she she was um, somehow written up for not standing and giving due respect to the uh, to the national anthem of Canada. I can't. <laughs> and that's part of this, you know, I, I have to remind, I, I feel like I'm constantly saying these things and I feel a little repetitive and my intent. And the reason that I, I feel that way is because I, I feel like we constantly have to be educating and educating and educating as radical indigenous people. And so often conversations about representation and, um, and success are defined through models that are inherently colonial. And one of them is the education system. And it's even something that I participated in as someone who has, who has, you know, sought um, sought a career in academia, who sought a career in museums, who sought a career as an educator. You know, a lot of that is still, and all of that, I would say, is still based in maintaining colonial ideologies of killing the Indian and saving the man. You know, academia is still a part of this conversation of boarding schools. All educate, all colonial education systems are part of this issue. They maintain many of the same atrocities and abuses. Um, and we just have packaged it differently uh, and uh, and adopted it as a means of success. And I, I want to unpack that more, at, you know, at another point. But I just need folks to understand that, like, education systems are inherently colonial. Well, and there, there's also ulterior motives oftentimes to um, even conversations about increased um, uh, uh, Native education or Native history in the curriculum. One of the things that's that's been one of the pushes on these schools with native mascots is this idea that they would um, they would promote more education as a way to demonstrate how much they are honoring native people with their mascot. And of course, that's not solving the native mascot issue; it's prolonging it. And then it it, it obviously the first question that it begs: if you believe that it's a, that it's right or proper to appropriate native imagery for a mascot then what the hell kind of uh, uh, curriculum are you going to add that's going to be of any real value in educating people about contemporary Native people, about who we are and what our experience has been? Because there isn't, that, that isn't going to be part of the education. And, and so you're right. You know, the education is, is oftentimes geared towards that same thing that I was talking about, this idea that, yes, these things happened, but now it's better because you're, you're assimilated. I mean, I remember Ronald Reagan being interviewed, I think in Europe, and and he was boasting about how great Native people are treated in in the United States. I mean, and and it was all geared towards assimilation. I mean, it it, it you're you're right. I mean, this is it is important that people realize that the 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 state of education today is still very much geared towards propagandizing, and and conformity. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look what we celebrate, even within our communities. So often what we celebrate are people who mine indigeneity for clout. We, we celebrate those who have found success through TikTok, through Instagram, through Twitter. We celebrate those who have found success as, as actors and actresses who have found success through academia. You know, and, and I, we cannot ignore the fact that all of those are a part of these systems of oppression. And I, you know, and I say this as someone who is also, you know, I have clout on Instagram and also have academic standing. And I know that my participation in this has also been detrimental. And it's part, you know, like we just can't, we can't ignore the interconnectedness of all of these narratives, which is something that we talk about so often on the show. And, and we also, you know, when we were in unpacking the, 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 um, the criminalization of critical race theory within classrooms, that is also connected to this because sure. it's not as if, um, you know, ha having conversations about indigenous people within school systems is one that unpacks genocide, but rather places us in the past and then celebrates when we join the army or celebrates when we are famous. Uh, so like, it, it only celebrate often educational systems only celebrate indigenous people when they also assimilate. Well, uh, and, and again, sport the, the idea of celebrating is to celebrate that uh, it, it, it is a it's celebrating that assimilation. I mean, look, you know, the, the, the tons of praise that went Deb Howland's way was because of, of where she is, not what she's done necessarily for native people. So the idea is that you are actually celebrating that assimilation and the success within their system. And there's no, I mean, look, I, I've said it before. I have a lot more respect for somebody like Regan DeLoggins on the front lines of line three, who, you know, or, or a grandmother who is, is still teaching, you know, our, our people to, uh, to, to braid corn uh, or, or any number of things that are never going to be recognized in uh, institutionally within the, the U.S. system, and and I, I just think it's I, I really do get bothered by those who will actually you know claim to to honor indigenous people, but the but the people they lift up. Look, I even um, exterminated all the brutes. I I called out Raul Peck because when he was talking about you know our the fact that we still remain the you know, the, the gallery of photos that he put up were, were all people who had success within the American system. And, and Roxanne, and we, yes. we talked about it with Roxanne, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We had something that we all talked about because it's so disappointing that that is, and that is a part of killing the Indian and saving the man. Absolutely. That shows the successfulness of residential school systems when we are in fact celebrating those who have navigated these systems for success for on, on arguably individualistic success, that is what the boarding school system wanted. They wanted Indians who would survive and then placate settler politics. They wanted the Deb Hallens. They wanted the, uh, uh, oh goodness, what's her name? Uh, the Grace Thorpes. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, they wanted the people who, uh, who came in who would succeed through colonialistic ideologies of what success is. I mean, even, is even often, Joy, Joy Harjo. Either holding and I, up I, is either, either upholding capitalism or upholding imperialism, and so often upholding both of those. Even, even Joy Harjo. Look, and, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to criticize Joy. I mean, I, I, I enjoy some of uh, Joy's poetry. But there are, there are young Native people who are making bold statements with their poetry, with, their, with the, the power of spoken word, who are never going to be applauded the way, the way Joy Harjo is. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not condemning her, but, but Joy's not the only poet that our people have ever produced. You cannot well, apologize and applaud assimilation at the same time. You can't apologize for it and applaud it at the I, same know, time. You know, and I feel... And I feel the same way that people really put Nick Estes on a pedestal in terms of like as a radical theorist, um, even though he is an academic as well. And like, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. Like the Red Nation, when I first read the manifesto, I really resonated with a lot of it. Um, also understanding that most of that was written by queer femmes. Um, but like the clout that the Red Nation has mined is, or not mined rather, but has really like moved up in is, is largely based on like, you know, Nick Estes's ability to, to sell and market himself. And, you know, like 
the books are available on Amazon. Like that's a problem. So I, I feel like there are larger critiques to be had in terms of who we see in our community as people that are really um, uplifting our communities and that we should be more critical of how they are participating in assimilation or how they're participating in clout mining and how that is interconnected to residential schools. There's a big, there, there's a big difference. Disposable. There's a big difference between lifting up our people and rising above them. And also, like, th that doesn't mean they aren't disposable. And also, these critiques come from a place of love because I care about my community. Yeah. So, like, these are invitations for people that have had the ability and who maybe, you know, found, found survival through assimilation. And this is a call back to be reminded that there that we actually have that that we should be putting more effort and time into rectifying the harms that have been done through residential school systems by empowering the youth by empowering the poor youth by empowering those who who are on the ground now fighting doing the doing the work and really uplifting those voices because those are the ones that aren't going to be heard because they are they don't have the same kind of platform they haven't navigated assimilation in the same way. And so, you know, it, again, like I, I want folks to understand that these critiques of some of the people that we, we, you know, that we talk about so often, it's because we want them to do better right. and because they have the ability to do better. Well, and, and you can't rectify um, this, this, uh, this history without really, you know, going back to what I said earlier, if you don't restore some of what you spent a hundred years trying to destroy, which is our distinction and our autonomy and our, and our identity. If you aren't willing to recognize who we are as distinct people, then, then, then we're nowhere. Look, I also want to address, you know, the, the, here's the, the problem that I have with, with apologies. And even the most formal and, you know, uh, demonstrative apologies. I, I go back to 1993, when during the Clinton administration, there was a joint resolution of Congress to apologize for the coup against the Hawaiian kingdom. I mean, so through a joint uh -huh. resolution of Congress, they apologized for the role the United States played in toppling the sovereign nation of the Hawaiian kingdom. And yet, a few years later, when that, uh, that joint resolution of Congress was used as evidence in, in, in a land use or, or, or in, in some um, hearing in, in federal court, the court said joint resolutions of Congress have no force of law. So, which is really absurd since that's how Hawaii was allegedly annexed was through a joint resolution of Congress. But the idea that you're, you're gonna no. apologize and there's no Contrition with that that apology. That apology has no value, not even value in terms of you know citing it when it comes to to demonstrating the ills and the wrongs that were committed against the people. It's crazy. Also, you know, I'm over apologies. I don't <laughs> want an apology. I want revenge. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want. I don't want an apology. I don't even really want accountability because settlers don't understand that accountability isn't an apology. They don't understand that accountability requires transformative justice, which then requires them to relinquish control. They don't understand that. So in the end, I don't want an apology. I don't want an apology about how you have been genociding us. I don't want an apology about residential schools. I don't want a truth and reconciliation uh, process that is then, you know, flattened by a, by a useless apology. I want revenge. And revenge is things like land back. Revenge is seeing our communities thrive, not just survive. Restoration, you know, that, restoration. That I am done with, I, I want that. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want an apology. And I definitely don't, if any of the apologies look like what First Nations people have been receiving from Trudeau and from different members of the church, then we know what apologies look like and they're garbage. So don't even waste your time. Yeah, I, I, think, I think back when um, this, this uh, uh, Pope Francis um, I've, I've recently um, reposted uh, my letter to him upon his, uh, his impending visit to, to New York. And I said, you're asking for forgiveness without contrition? You're, you're the, the head of the Catholic Church? You will not repudiate the doctrine of Christian discovery? You want to acknowledge the wrongs that your church did, but you don't want, it's not what you say. Like Mary Porter said, it's not what you say. It's what you do. And he would not, 
Of course. I mean, and he did this all while he was going through the canonization of Huda Parasera. I mean, so it's like, how the hell can you, on one, out of one side of your face, ask for forgiveness for the wrongs that folks like Huna Parasera did, and then canonize him to be, become your most recent saint? Are you freaking kidding me? Well, that's how you know that apologies aren't real. Exactly. And that's how you know that there's no intention to actually rectify the harm done by the state and the church on indigenous people. You know, and that's why and that's why I'm so adamant in saying that I do not want an apology. I will. I honestly am I'm dreading the day that the Biden administration puts out a oh, we're so sorry to all the Indians we killed through residential school. Like I, I am dreading that moment. And I'm and I'm dreading the co-option of our mourning and our remembrance because we know it's going to happen. And so for those who are listening who are not indigenous, please, please do not co-opt our trauma and our pain for your own righteous agenda to placate the guilt of being on our land. The only apology that I want to see is for white people to get off this land. Transfer that is land, the ultimate re restore moment. Restoration, land back, these are the things that are the only thing of yes. substance. Those are actions. Apologies are words. And frankly, even this idea of, of writing the check, like they, the, like they were doing on the Canadian side. You know, writing a check to people is, is since you print the money, it, 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 and the, the, um, the, the value of that is coming from the stuff that you stole from our land in the first place. I mean, it's... It's yeah. it, again, it's another slap in the face. It's another slap in the face. I totally agree. Absolutely. Don't do that either. <laughs> Just get off the land and we'll be set. <laughs> yeah. And you can, you can start by getting rid of your equipment uh, that seems to be cutting through our watersheds and that kind of stuff as we speak. And, and look, and, and, and again, message to native people, keep fighting. We need to resist. We need to, we need to fight in every way that we can. You know, and, and we all have different strengths and we all have things to contribute to resistance. But the, the, the true resistance comes from asserting our identity, asserting who we are uh, in, in today and not allowing this idea of assimilation and genocide to, uh, to don't allow them to claim success. Yeah, like don't allow the state to rob your Absolutely. Well, uh, Regan, I want to thank you so much. This uh, it was great to have you. Uh, this has been uh, the best show uh, in recent weeks because of your connectivity coming out from uh, from Minnesota. So it is so great to hear you, and I thank you so much for contributing to this show. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. Again, support WBAI, support WPFW, and uh, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yahweh. <laughs>